take a seat. Good to see you today. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors on the team. Uh, it's an honor to be able to always to have the opportunity to speak on the, at the beginning of a new year is an incredible gift. So I'm so thankful to Pastor Mike for giving me this opportunity. Well, it's that time of year again. Isn't it the time of year where we, we come up with New Year's resolutions? Now, I asked in the first service, how many of you come up with New Year's resolutions? About two hands went up. Um, just curious, how many, any other new resolution people? Good, three. Great. We're making progress. Well, what would make this the best year ever for you? I mean, that's a great question to ask at the beginning of a new year. Uh, for some people, it's maybe more in the material realm, uh, maybe a new car, a new house, uh, some gadget that you've been hoping for. Maybe you got it for Christmas, maybe you didn't. Uh, for others, it, maybe it's a little more uh, personal in the sense of maybe it's a new job, or for some, it might be adding to your family or having that first baby. But you can fill in the blank because... Uh, I don't know whether you've thought about it yet. We're, we're not that far past Christmas, and some of you may not yet be in the New Year's resolution mode. But uh, one thing is for sure. I learned this years ago. It's really true. It's worth writing down, by the way, and memorizing. Your goals have a way of pulling you into the future. But I found that so true in my life. The things that I aspired to, whether it was educationally or in some other area, of financial area or whatever, that setting those concrete, tangible goals really is a powerful motivator. Uh, the challenge, of course, is coming up with the right, with the right resolutions or the right commitments. And, uh, and that's the hard part, isn't it? For example, uh, here are some New Year's resolutions I came across. And I can really resonate with this first person. Every year they cross out their resolutions. Like, number one, lose more weight was changed to lose weight again. Uh, get fit next year. We can relate to that one. Um, and then, like, stand up to the boss, and then scratch out, find a job. You know, you know how that goes. I like to sort out junk in the shed, no, in my life. So resolutions, we make them, don't we? How about this one? My New Year's resolutions are, number one, stop making lists. Letter B, be more consistent. <laughs> Letter seven, learn to count. And then uh, this last one, I think, probably says it all. What exactly is a New Year's resolution? And the answer is, it's a to-do list for the first week of January. <laughs> and I, I think that's about how it goes for most of us. Well, the reality is, because of the way God wired us, we are all aspirational. By that I mean, we all aspire to something. At least if you're a healthy, wholesome person, and, uh, and you're just kind of making your way through life, we, we look forward to the possibility of the arc of our life that trajectory being somewhat different over the next 365 days. I, at least I know I'm that way. When, when the, the clock rolls around and the new year begins, you think, man, I can start all over again. That, that one-year reading Bible plan or Bible reading plan, I can get through that this year. You know, we, we all have goals that we set out in that way. And I've actually thought about this a lot over the years, um, maybe because I'm sort of a list person and a goal-oriented person. But I, I remember some years ago I started out, I, I thought, uh, I looked at the seven areas of life. You know, there's the career, there's the family, marriage side of it, there's friendship, physical fitness, financial, and so forth. And I would, I would take each of those areas and I would create three goals in each of those areas. And it looked good on paper. It was quite impressive. But I, I couldn't manage or monitor that at all. 
So then after a few years, I kind of wisened up, and I, I went with the Jim Collins approach, you know, the guy that wrote the book Built to Last and, and other books. He talks about BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. And so I thought, well, I'll do this. I'll, I'll boil it down to just seven goals. I'll take the seven areas, and I'll have one big goal in each area. And honestly, that worked a lot better. But you have to be careful what you come up with, but that big goal that really can consume you in your family life or in your work life or in your financial life is to get that big picture was really important. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Well, that worked a lot better. But uh, when I started thinking about this year and being able to deliver a, a message this morning, I thought, you know, I'll take a different perspective. I started asking myself, what singular goal, what one thing would be enough to merit my best time and effort in a new year? If I would go after just one thing, what would it be? And I, I started thinking about it from a, a Chris, Christian perspective. And obviously, it didn't take long for me to decide what that would be. And uh, it boiled down to not just one sentence. It boiled down to one word, and the word is love. And I, I suspect when you hear that, uh, and even I thought this when I first began to envision what I would say today, is that, wow, love. You know, we talk about that all the time, and doesn't everybody understand love? And, you know, it, it's, it's such a huge concept. Love God, love people, serve the world. I mean, we're really into all of that, and I think it's great. But I'd like you to think about it a little more deeply today because I think it becomes simplistic or easy or even white noise over time. We know the words to say and we say them, but do we really think about the depth of that particular word? On the night before his death, Jesus spent a lot of time recapping for his disciples his top teachings. He wanted them to understand core truths. He wanted them to really own these truths and and, and you probably have heard the saying that there's nothing more profound, perhaps, in many cases, than a person's final words. And these were words Jesus uttered really just a day or less before he went to the cross. And so you can imagine sort of the sobriety of that situation. It was the Passover, and the Passover meal was to be served, and Jesus was going to turn that whole meal on its head with its, in terms of its meaning. And, and, and he began to share with his disciples these profound truths. And as he's talking to them about these truths, uh, he, he says things like, if you want to find real life, then you need to stay intimately connected to me. Some of us know that from John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, and that if, if we want to have real life, we need to abide in Christ. He also says to them, uh, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave, but I'll, I'll not leave you as orphans. Now, this is important because on several occasions, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to return to the Father, and they, they kind of blocked out what he said. Their emotional shock absorbers went to work like, we, we don't want to hear that you're leaving us. So that night, he has to reiterate for them what he said on several occasions, which was this, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die there. They didn't want to hear that. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave his orphans. And then he says... The Holy Spirit is going to be sent to you by the Father, and he will be with you, and he will be in you. What a beautiful, profound truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. The power of God, the supernatural power of God. Dr. Bill Bright, I love the way he used to put it. He'd say, uh, uh, we provide the natural, and God provides the super. True. So Jesus, after, after all these teachings, and by the way, I would really encourage you, John chapter 13 through 17 this is called the Upper Room Discourse by Bible scholars. I, I've camped on these passages many times over the years. 
It is some of the richest teaching you will ever find. I'd encourage you this week, take one day and read through each one of those chapters, one chapter a day, and I think it has the potential to revolutionize your life and to understand what biblical Christianity is all about. So Jesus is sharing the upper room. He's taking all of this time spelled out in all these chapters by John because this is a profound moment. And yet of all the things Jesus says that have the potential to be a game changer for his disciples, he then says this. Actually, he starts out pretty much with this. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, his words are a command. Certainly elsewhere, but here as well. It's an imperative. It's not an option for us to love. Jesus says, if you follow me, it is the way of love. And that's why I want to spend some time spelling this out this morning. Writing a little while later, uh, the Apostle Paul fleshes out these same ideas. And and he puts it like this in Ephesians 5, verse 2. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. So I want to zero in on what, uh, I'm going to make these into bite-sized challenges. So the outline, if you have your hand out in front of you, no no blanks to fill in today, because I I want us to get this message very clearly. It just breaks down this verse. Number one, the first challenge, uh, Peter says, and Jesus would certainly agree, live a life of love. Sounds easy, doesn't it? In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing into a context uh, of a lot of... um, Uh, cultural issues where there were a lot of problems. The Corinth was a city that that was famous for free love. And now he was going to talk to them about sacrificial love. This kind of flies in the face of what the people in that day would have aspired to. This was a culture that was pretty much untethered in this city. And Paul is writing about sacrifice. This, This is something I think we often miss as Christians because many of us are not good historians. We don't realize that so many of the values that we enjoy in the country we live in, in any democracy, is because of these principles of sacrifice and love and sharing and being willing to die for someone else. These were not uh, necessarily common ideas in the first century. It was sort of a, everyone looking out for themselves. In particular, uh, men uh, having the power to look out for themselves and elevating themselves over women and children. It was Christianity that liberated women and children, although you wouldn't necessarily believe that today when you uh, watch the news or you listen to the way that people present the scriptures. So it's so important we go back to biblical teaching and to the history of that day. So Paul is writing, and he writes some uh, big, hairy, audacious words that are so inspiring. 2,000 years later, they're read at just about every wedding I've ever attended. And they're taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I suspect you know these words, but I want to invite you to read them with me so they'll appear on the screen for you. Join with me. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. you got to admit, that's a pretty amazing passage. And you can see why it's read at just about every Christian marriage. Now, I suspect, as I said, you've heard these words 
at marriages many times, but I doubt that you've ever heard them at a funeral. And I think it's because these are words for the living. These are words of action. Uh, there's a lawyer that's a committed believer that uh, wrote a book, became very popular. It's an amazing communicator. His name is Bob Goff, and the title of the book is Love Does. So notice the activity. Love is not passive. Love is all about action. And so uh, I thought, since this passage is so familiar, I'd try something uh, today that maybe would be beneficial for you. If you turn over your handout, on the back, I, I have a little section called Assessing Your Love. And what I did was, I took this familiar passage that becomes white noise because we've heard it a lot, and the words come so quickly, and they're so deep, we don't have time to really reflect on them. So I broke them down for you, and I want you to see that in those few verses, there are 16 different facets of love. And uh, I've even issued some challenges for you to consider to review that list and to see how you're doing. And what I suggest is go through it and go, love is patient, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at that, or I'm not. If it's not true for you, then leave it blank. It's something you've got to work on. And my guess is you may hit several of these going, I'm doing pretty well. So you might want to check in with a spouse or a close friend to make sure that, that, that they see things the same way you do. Um, and, and I suspect you'll be surprised. But um, the thing like patience, like one of the ways to work on patience, right, when you're on the 405, don't get in the HOV lane. I don't want to get in that lane anyway because I don't want to pay that price. But, but, you know, you learn a lot of patience when you're not in that lane these days, right? Things are a lot slower. Or you ever notice when you go to the grocery store, no matter how hard you try, you get in the longest, slowest line. It just works out that way. So if, if you're thinking this week, and this is what I suggest, this week or this month, just focus on one. Love is patient. So you might even put yourself in a position where your patience will be tested. I, I guarantee you it won't take long for that to happen. But to test your patience, maybe to seek out that longer line, maybe to, to kind of slow down. And I was reading an article this morning about breathe more deeply. We don't breathe deeply enough, apparently, and we're so stressed out all the time. But what I want us to see here is 16 facets of love. How humbling can that be? When I decided I was going to speak on this topic, it was pretty much on a morning that I was batting over 16. I remember I wish I could reverse uh, engineer a conversation I had with my wife this morning. She's here to witness to that. And, uh, you know, it just didn't go well. I wasn't tracking on any of these 16. And I got to church, and I'd been thinking about this message, and it became rather obvious in that moment that I needed to really reconsider these claims of Paul about loving your spouse and what that looks like. Now, I can say this freely because it helps to know all of you are in the same boat, Right? Um, some of you on the way to church this morning found that out. You came here to worship God, but, but on the way there were some challenges that maybe tested your patience or uh, made you lose your temper, whatever it might be. So you can see the practicality of this. So as we begin 2016, uh, let's begin with that clean slate we all hope for. A little while later, we're going to celebrate communion together. And the beautiful thing about communion is it's all about a new beginning and starting over. So take a deep breath. Relax and enjoy the flight. I just had to say that. <laughs> All right. So here are the challenges. Number one, live a life of love. Oh, that sounds so easy, doesn't it? But living a life of love means more than occasional acts. It means carefully cultivating a lifestyle. Carefully cultivating a lifestyle. Discipline is part of the Christian life. Discipline is part of life. And we know that people that are disciplined actually gain freedom because their discipline enables them 
to operate in certain ways they would otherwise not be able to operate. Now, in English, we really only have one word for love. It's the word love. I love my dog. I love my ice cream. I love my spouse. You know, it just doesn't work all that well. And this is why there's so much confusion in our language. Uh, the Greeks, on the other hand, they had several words for love. Most of us are, if you've been a, a churchgoer for any length of time, you know there are three words for love. There are actually more words for love in the Greek, but we think of three, and I'm going to actually mention those three this morning, just so that you can see they're able to take a word that's black and white, love, and they're able to add color to it, right? So one of the Greek words for love is the word eros. It's where we get the word erotic. It has to do with intense physical desire. It's, it's what soap operas are made of, right? It's, it's usually focused on that kind of love, the erotic kind of love. It's why Tina Turner years ago, some of you may remember her, she wrote a song or sang a song called What's Love Got to Do With It? Well, if you don't have other ways to describe love, love can be a very confusing thing. We can confuse sex and love and on and on it goes. But the Greeks didn't have that problem. They had a word for it. They had the word eros to describe it, but they had a second word to describe a different kind of love. It's the word phileo. It's a word that means mutual affection, reciprocal love. It's Philadelphia is a combination of two Greek words, and these two words, Philadelphia, have mean the city of brotherly love, right? And uh, it's a kind of I'll scratch your back kind of love. It's a love that you walk into this relationship and you say it's a 50-50 deal. And I have to tell you, this is a problem in a lot of marriages today. Maybe you've experienced this or maybe you're experiencing this. It's sort of a I'll do my half and you do your half. That is not a Christian view of love. That's not a biblical view of love. The biblical view of love is that each person comes into this relationship and gives 100%. I know how challenging that is. I mean, I, I've been a pastor a lot of years, and I've seen people going through struggling times in their relationships. And in those relationships, uh, it seems like sometimes one person at least believes they're giving so much, and the other person's not responding. That's a very difficult thing. And uh, I would just pray for you and encourage you to continue to be faithful to the Lord and to trust God to walk with you as you continue to love in a situation where that may not be the response that you're getting. But I want to ask the question a little bit differently. Whether you're married or single or in a relationship right now that's developing, uh, I want to ask you the question, what are your expectations in marriage? What are you bringing to the table? Now, I thought about this, and I I thought of an example from my youth When I was a late teenager, I have two older brothers, and my oldest brother had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, and he was back, and he was a young man, and he was looking to get into the dating scene and and, uh, all this. And so uh, one day I discovered he had purchased a journal, and being a nosy younger brother, I, I, uh, I looked inside of his journal. Now, I know girls, ladies, I know you never do that, but guys, they don't keep journals, so I thought it was okay. So, So I look in his journal, and I didn't get very far into it, then I found... He had a, a section called Qualities of My Future Wife. And he had listed seven pages <laughs> worth of expectations. You know, like hair color, eye color, height, the whole deal. And being an irritating younger brother, I couldn't help but confront him on it. Because as I looked through a journal, I said, hey, hey brother, you, you, you've, you've listed seven pages of all the qualities that you're looking for in a wife. But I flipped the page, and I didn't see any list of the qualities you're bringing to the marriage. <laughs> That's the way we are, ladies. 
By the way, he married a great wife, so I don't know. <laughs> I have to think about that. All right, so, but that, that's one of those deals where he looks at me and gives me a disgusted look when I ask him what you're bringing to the table, and he says, don't be stupid, <laughs> right? Like, why would I come with the list? Well, there's a third Greek word, and it's the word that uh, you may know. It's the word agape. And now the interesting thing is the word agape was used rarely in the Greek culture. It means unconditional love. Think about that. Unconditional love, not a word we use often within the Greek culture of Jesus' day. And yet, Jesus writes to the disciples, and in light of these nuances of meaning, let me restate his command to us. Love one another, comma, unconditionally. That's what he's saying. Love without limits. Now, let's face it. The idea of grace that we don't have to earn our salvation, but Jesus freely offers it, that's an amazing thing. We couldn't do it without God's help, in other words. Well, I think love is just like that. Without the help of God, we're in deep weeds. There's just no way that we can love unconditionally. Uh, there's an author named Dr. Francis Schaeffer. He's a famous philosopher, theologian in the last half of the last century. And uh, he talked about love. In fact, he called... Uh, a whole teaching that he did, the final apologetic. And what he was saying is, uh, he was saying that there is no argument beyond this. This is the most powerful argument. Now understand, we use the word apology to say, well, I'm sorry for something, I apologize. But for most of history, that's not what apology meant. Apology meant a reasoned defense. It means to be able to protect that which is worth protecting. And so whenever we, quote-unquote, defend our faith, we become apologists. We are protecting something we believe. So consistent with that historic teaching, that's what Schaefer is saying. He's saying at the end of the day, there is no argument, no theological uh, concept that is more persuasive than this, to love. Now keep in mind, he firmly believed in defending the faith and knowing what we believed and why. But he said, there is nothing that has the capacity to melt or reshape the human heart like love. So let me put on part of what he says about this. It'll be on the screen. Yet without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give proper answers. This is a huge problem in our day. Christianity has a terrible reputation. It's a finger-wagging response. Now, I think the churches are changing a lot. I'm encouraged by it. I really think there's been a lot of change in the last decade. But the reality is that's a perception. For many people, perception becomes reality. Jesus, of course, understood that. And Schaefer did too. He continues, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime to study to give an honest answer. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So it's well to spend time learning to answer the questions of men and women who are about us. So he's not saying... Don't take time to study. Don't take time to really know your Bible. Don't take time to really understand the deep and profound theological truths. He's just saying that's not the end game. That's not the greatest asset we have. He continues, but after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. See, that's exactly what Jesus was getting at. Because he knew that if the church couldn't get along, the people inside that church didn't get along, that it wouldn't be a very powerful witness to a world. Now, I, I love Overlake, and I think 
God has done an amazing job here. Pastor Mike's leadership's awesome. We have a great team, and we have an awesome congregation. And we all love you so much. And it's such a delight to serve you because I just believe that we get the spirit of what Jesus is saying. But I've got to tell you, when I started in ministry back in 1900, none of your business, uh, <laughs> it wasn't that way. In smaller churches, it was like uh, a lot of squabbling, a lot of infighting. In fact, there was a saying back in the day, uh, and it goes like this, the reason church fights are so big is because the issues are so small. It's true, isn't it? It's true in your marriage, if you're married. Or if you're in a good, close friendship relationship, it's true in that relationship, right? You get into fights over the smallest thing. And then you have an experience like we had in our family just this past week, and it changes your perspective. On Tuesday of last week, I got a knock on my door. Uh, It was dark. We didn't have the outside lights on. And I walk outside, and I look, and there's a woman standing there. And, oh, it's my next-door neighbor. You know, she doesn't usually show up on my doorstep at that hour. And she says, I just wanted you to know my husband died. 53 years old. And we went this week to the funeral. And, uh, you know, things that seemed so big a moment ago, all of a sudden, they're scaled way back. Now, there are other things than death that will do that. A marriage that goes south, when the day comes, that breakup comes, uh, that's a bad day. But what I want us to see is there is a perspective around all this that sometimes we focus on the little things and we forget the big thing. And that's why I want to remind us of that one thing, love. The second challenge is this, follow Jesus' example. And that's really a pretty cool challenge because Jesus is the ultimate example of how to live. And Jesus has a wonderful way of letting us take the idea of walking in someone else's footsteps to attain a goal. A lot of times we'll study under people that are masters in a given field because we know that if we can somehow walk in their footsteps, yes, we cut our own path, but, but somehow we follow the, the pathway that they've set, we do so much better. And so Jesus, as a master teacher, he always gives an example before he gives the explanation. He feeds the 5,000, then the disciples collect the bread, each of them comes back with a basket full of bread, and he explains what he just did. He heals somebody, and then the disciples say, what just happened there? And Jesus explains. In the same way, on this last night, Jesus did the same thing. You see, that's a hallmark of great leadership, and it's also a hallmark of great lordship, is to lead the way. That Jesus would never ask anything of us that he himself wouldn't do or give us the power to do. Um, John 13 is a classic example of this. It says in the opening part of that upper room discourse, John 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Then I love these words. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In another translation, it says, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Wow. After all those years with him, now he's going to show them the full extent of his love. And if you know the scene at all, the disciples are kind of hanging back. They're at this Passover feast, and there's supposed to be a servant at the door that, that washes everybody's feet, anoints their feet, anoints their head with oil. That's not happening. So they're just kind of hanging back like, we don't, we don't do that. Well, Jesus takes off his outer robe, and in the ancient world, that was called the toga of virilis, the robe of manhood. Jesus takes off his rabbinic robe, if you will, his, his, his robe of manhood, lays it aside, 
and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now they're all embarrassed because they, <laughs> we blew it. That was, a, that was a moment where we should have stepped up, and now they're all defensive toward one another. And, uh, and Jesus then, after he washes their feet, and they all kind of argue about what they should have done, Jesus takes full advantage of the teachable moment, and he explains, this is what I just did. John 13, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. All right, there it is. Example, explanation. Now, we don't have a tradition in many churches today of foot washing, and I'm not sorry that we don't have that tradition, actually. But, but, but I have done it on occasion. I think it's a good thing to do. I just wouldn't want to do it every other week, uh, necessarily. But, but foot washing is powerful. It's humbling. It's, it's kind of awkward even to watch. But I got to tell you, in that moment, whether you're the recipient or the, or the initiator or the giver, uh, it, it's powerful. And in that culture, that would have been extremely powerful because there's no way that Jesus, as a, as a master and as a teacher, would have succumbed to that kind of behavior. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus does. Peter learns a lesson that night, and that lesson goes with him. Why? Because he's following in Jesus' footsteps. Years later, when addressing tough times being faced by Jewish believers that had been scattered all over the world, that were being persecuted, not unlike we see in the world today, by the way, Jesus shows them how to live in a hostile world. He paves it with a way of love. And I, I, I struggle with this more nowadays because we're seeing this happen more in our world. But I know that Jesus wants us to respond with love. I don't exactly know what that looks like in every moment, to be persecuted and to love. It's hard enough to love people I love, but to love my enemies? And some of us need to rethink that even today as we look at the world, as we watch the news, take it with some grain of salt because it is the news and it is media ratings. But, but when you look at this and you know these horrible things are going on in the world, how do we respond as followers of Jesus? Well, that was the situation Peter found himself in. And notice what he says in 1 Peter 2, remembering what Jesus did and what Jesus said. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You know, Paul writes in another place that I fill up in my body the sufferings of Jesus. He's not talking about his salvation there. He's just talking about the reality that some people, some Christ followers in some eras are going to face horrible persecution. He encouraged them when they suffered for a just cause. They were literally walking in the master's footsteps. Suffering, he said, would often be a reality for his people. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have trouble. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. All right, so follow Jesus' example. Thirdly, and probably most poignantly this morning, at least for me, love others and give yourself up for their well-being. We talk about love God, love people, serve the world. But what would it look like if each of us sort of put on this mantle and said, I'm going to love others in a way that I give myself up for their well-being? Wow. A famous missionary named C.T. Studd. Good name, Studd, huh? Uh, Hadn't thought about that. He was a missionary to China, Africa, and India. And he's the one who made famous the saying, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. I agree with that. Think about that for just a moment. I know we all come from different situations and circumstances. 
But if we want to be an influence and an extension of God's kingdom in, in this world, then we need to understand that God's love and the reflection of it in the world begins at home. And honestly, it begins with marriage. And I know today a marriage is under assault. There's no surprise there, right? Marriage is under assault. Why? Because when Paul writes about it, he talks about the mystery of marriage. He says, there's something in marriage that's a picture of Christ and the church. And I'll tell you, this is almost beyond human understanding. This mysterious union that he talks about. But he makes it pretty clear, and Jesus would underscore the same thing, that it begins at home. And for those of us who are married, who happen to be in that intimate of a relationship, um, this is where it starts. And if I would write a book, it would start with these three words. Marriage is difficult. Right? probably could end there. It's very difficult. And we enter, most of us, into marriage with unrealistic expectations. That's why it's said that as far as it goes, uh, you know, we enter into the marriage ideal, soon it becomes an ordeal, then we want a new deal. It's kind of the way it goes. It's tough. Now think back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love perseveres. Love never gives up. I know, I know, I know many of you have walked through difficult situations in your relationships. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying wherever God finds you right now is to be consistent, to walk with him, to hold to the values that God calls us to, to love one another, to be forgiving. And in some cases, we end up moving on. But the reality is today can be a day of new beginnings. If your marriage is struggling, it can be a day of a new beginning. Or the relationship is struggling, it can be a new beginning. God wants to bring healing and wholeness into all of our lives. I actually prefer the advice that says, enter into marriage with your eyes wide open and keep them half shut thereafter. I think that works a lot better. And this is where I want to get a little more poignant if I, if I can. Men, it starts with us. I've done research in this area for decades. I've worked with men all of my ministry, and specifically in men's ministries. It starts with us, guys. I know we don't get it oftentimes. But I've got to tell you, the strength of marriages is often reflected in, in the, the relationship of a husband, spiritually speaking. Now, I'm not talking about the husband being the head of the home and being somehow some, some control freak. That's not at all. The Bible talks about loving servanthood about giving ourselves up for the other person. That's the kind of love I'm talking about. And there's all kinds of research to back this up, that the husband sets the emotional thermostat in the home. So a wife is there leading the children, and if a husband's sitting back, arms crossed, sitting in the easy chair, and just uh, being non-engaged, that has a profound impact on the emotional temperature in that home. I'm not just talking about working overtime or traveling too much. I'm talking about what Pastor Mike talked about last month. He did a whole series. You may not be perfect, but be present. Be present. When I lived in Minnesota, they, they had a T-shirt. Mostly it was worn by guys. And it's so encapsulated, I think, how so many men think. It just says, whatever. That is not what God calls us to as men. So, for example, if your wife is cooking dinner, get up from the computer or TV and ask, can I help? Can I set the table? Can I fill the water glasses? Can I call the, the children to get to the table on time? And by the way, in the spirit of full disclosure, my wife reviews all of my sermons, and she wrote that paragraph. <laughs> but rightly so. It's loving accountability. And I appreciate it. I, I like to get feedback. You know, Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. 
This is why God puts us in this intimate relationship so we can have loving accountability. So ladies, you're a little bit off the hook this morning. I just want to quote from Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Man, you talk about wisdom. It's right there. A man who loves his wife loves himself. Before I I came to Overlake in 2000, um, I worked in a men's ministry called Promise Keepers. I I started in the field. I ultimately became chief of staff, and I worked directly for the founder, Bill McCartney, who I deeply love and admire, an amazing man, amazing man of God. He had been the uh, head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes from 1982 to 1994. They won a national championship. These were their glory days, the pinnacle of success. They're actually ESPN has done a series on head coaches. You can watch. I would encourage you to watch the one on, on Coach McCartney. And uh, here's a man who came to faith in 1974. But like a lot of men I've known over the years, and believe me, I've known a ton in churches I've served, that are there every week sitting in a seat Their body's present, but their minds and hearts a thousand miles away. Then one Sunday, his pastor, who I also know, or knew, he passed away, um, announced one Sunday he was going to turn the pulpit over to a pastor that had spent 40 years in ministry, 40 years in the pulpit, and he was going to speak on the most important thing he'd learned over all these years of ministry, the one thing that he wanted to say to the church. So I want to read you the exact words of what he said. Sunday began, and this is what the pastor said. Do you want to know about a man? Do you really want to know about a man's character? He continued, if you want to know about a man's character, then look into the face of his wife. Whatever he has invested or withheld will be revealed in her countenance. I mean, those are striking words. In his book, Sold Out, Coach Mack writes this. I turned and looked squarely into Lindy's face. My heart sank. What I saw stunned me. Her face, it was sad and empty. Her eyes, once so bright and effervescent, had lost their sparkle. They were dull and downcast and discouraged. Instead of radiant splendor, I saw pain. Instead of rich contentment, I saw slow decay, emotional turmoil and torment. Lindy appeared drained, depleted, and unfulfilled. A shiver of panic gripped me. What had I done? Now, I've got to tell you, head football coaches put long hours in, but a lot of you put long hours in too. And it's sadly true that you can look into the face of a spouse and you can see what's been invested or withheld. And I know that's challenging this morning. And the communion table is here for all of us for that reason today. But her devastated look led this highly successful, award-winning coach to step away from a lucrative career at the pinnacle of his success to say, I need to invest in my wife. And I, I commend him for the courage it took to take that incredible step. Leaving a powerful position to invest the remaining time and energy in one thing, in one person, the one person, his wife, who he loved more than all else, A famous American evangelist by the name of D.L. Moody lived in a bygone era, but he said this, a man ought to live so that everybody knows he's a Christian, 
most of all, his family ought to know. So true. I don't know where things stand for you this morning as a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter, but this much I do know, and you could take this to the bank. Your biggest impact for the kingdom of God is inside those four walls of your home. It's with your family. That's why Paul says it's a mystery. It's your husband. It's your wife. It's your children. That's where love begins. That's what Jesus was talking about. I know even as I say this, it's going to bring pain to some of your hearts. But that's loving accountability. And just like Coach Mack, sometimes we need to hear that hard truth. But to know that our God is a God of new beginnings. That's what New Year's all about, right? And so this is a time of confession and repentance and do-overs. And and believe me, just like I saw transformation in that marriage, you can see transformation in your home. And I would even add, if not, because I had someone approach me after the first service and say, I just found out yesterday my husband's divorcing me, but I'm going to follow Christ. I would say to every one of you, what, I, what I've said to myself and, and what I've said to other men, I've said to other women, Jesus tells Peter when he's wondering at the end of John's gospel, what's going to happen to him? He takes Peter by the face, I believe, turns it right into his eyes and says, Peter, don't worry about him. You follow me. And that's the best advice I can give you this morning after my 40 years in ministry is to say regardless of what circumstance you're facing today, whether it's a marriage where you need to repent and seek forgiveness or whether, uh, or whether it's the end of a relationship and now you're on a whole new path you never thought you'd be on, Jesus would say to you, you follow me. Don't, don't look at what they're doing. Look at what I want you to do as you follow me. It's in that spirit that I want us to come to the table this morning. And this is the good news. This is a table, this is a table Jesus transformed from a Passover meal that looked forward to the coming of a Messiah, to the Messiah who was there that night, who says, there's no need to offer a new sacrifice. The Bible uses, again, in the Greek language, aorist tense, point action. Jesus died for your sins once for all. This is not a mass that we celebrate this morning. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus. It's already done. It's a table of grace. So when you partake of these elements, the bread reflects the body of Jesus, the blood reflects, or the cup reflects his blood that was shed for us, It's a table of forgiveness. It's a place of starting over. And so in that spirit, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And uh, as you do, I just want to say a couple things. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28, where Paul talks about communion, he says this. A prerequisite to the table is that we ought to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I hope this morning you'll take a moment to examine yourself. Husbands, wives, sons, daughters, Do a 360, do a CAT scan on your life and say, what is it that I need to confess? What would be the best starting point to move toward this concept of love that Jesus talks about? I also want to add, if you don't know Jesus, it's a gift that God offers us. We did just celebrate it at Christmas. The Bible says if you confess your sins, believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. If you can acknowledge your need for a Savior, admit that there's sin in your life that needs forgiveness, the Bible says that you can receive the gift of new life through Christ. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. There's no better day than the beginning of the new year. If you're a believer and maybe you've messed up along the way or maybe you've gotten off the path, I want to encourage you. You can rededicate your life this morning. You can let 2016 be exactly what Cheryl talked about at the beginning, a year of miracles because God will bring about the changes he promises to bring. And if you're here this morning and you're not quite sure, in just a few moments when we partake of communion, don't feel the pressure to come forward and receive the elements. We're glad you're here. 
We're just glad you came today. Just reflect on what was shared this morning. Take just a moment to reflect, and I'll lead us in a prayer before we come to the table. Father God, we thank you for your great grace. Where would we be without it? The Bible's pretty clear when it talks about, apart from Jesus, there really is no hope. He's the Savior of the world. The world can argue that all they want, but it's what your word does teach. And Father God, I thank you this morning that we can come to this table and know that it's a place of acceptance, it's a place of reminder, it's a place of proclamation, all of those things. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as we come to the table that we would come with that one thing in mind. How can I live the life Jesus talked about? How can I love my loved ones, my brothers and sisters, those around me that may not be loving? How can I love them unconditionally and show your love for the world? Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand where you're at. There are tables at the front, in the middle, and the back. You make your way to the table when the time is right for you.